0: If you want this podcast free of ads, follow us now on patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams.
1: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Geeky Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm, Hello Fresh. <laughs>
0: Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss.
1: What in the world is happening on Wall Street? Economic indicators.
0: Who knows where this is going to end up? To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature.
2: This podcast is powered by Acast.
0: How are you doing there? It is podcast time. John is just recovering from his uh, performance at the Olympia. I'm all croaked up. You are all croaked up.
2: (laughs) What a night. What a a fantastic night. night. It's a great night. Really enjoyed it. And
0: you know what happened to you is you were probably feeling sick up until Friday, Saturday. But the nerves wouldn't allow you to be sick.
2: Yeah, well, I was secret nerves,
0: actually. It was sick with yes. nerves. Well, you didn't seem it at all. It was great. We were uh, just in case you don't know, and you're not around, we John and I, following the footsteps of you know, small bands, small, small David Bowie Bowie and, and people <laughs> like that. We 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 played the Olympia to a full house on Saturday night. It was fantastic. But the worst thing is it may lead to us inflicting ourselves on a small town near you at some stage over the Absolutely. course of the next year. Watch may, out, watch out. We might out. do a world tour, <laughs> world tour, European tour. <laughs> anyway, let us kick off with the news in the last couple of days. The price of oil, John? Yeah. It's gone to $140 a barrel. Do you remember price of oil was below zero? Remember you was was negative. That's right. Two years ago? Yeah. And um, um, in fact, around this time, two years ago, the very beginning of the pandemic. But can I just ask a question? I, am I right in
2: thinking that right now, even though prices are shooting up, the supply of oil hasn't actually changed?
0: No, it's the prospect of the supply chain.
2: Yeah. So it's all it's all the chatter that people are getting spooked. So
0: or, or maybe not. Maybe it is the knowledge that at some stage in the near future the European Union in particular and the United States also will stop buying Russian oil. Yeah. But we haven't done so just yet, Yeah, but we will stop. Dude, but, but that's what I mean. So that well, we once haven't we, done yet. And once we do stop the price of oil, that price you're seeing now will be made legitimate yeah. by the
2: fact that supply... It's just interesting the, how the markets work. That well, that's, all the all price on, on. of
0: nickel has gone up by a thousand percent. Well, why nickel? Because Amer- the Russians make all the nickel in the world. Norse nickel is one of the biggest, uh, in fact, I've been in Norse nickel, the actual company, <laughs> all right. uh, which is up in the middle of nowhere, up in the oblast, up towards the Arctic. Mm. The Russians make all the nickel in the world, or almost all of it. Price of wheat going through the roof. Sure. But all yeah. these things are a direct consequence of, the next phase of sanctions which will be sanctions on russia's hard commodities yeah and we're going to talk in a couple of minutes to sunny kapoor about the design of the sanctions why they've been designed this way and also how Good, the rest yeah. of the world is, is reacting but that's what's happening so if you look now commodity markets right now oil gas wheat commodities all sorts of raw materials yeah you know rare earths all these things that go into everything They're all going through the roof now. If Gorby
2: was around, this wouldn't be happening.
0: If Gorby, well, you know I interviewed Gorbachev. Yes, I know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I interviewed Gorbachev, which I think was still, for me, was my most uh, memorable interview. It was years ago, a long time ago, he came to Ireland and amazingly, from what I can see, I was doing a show, Agenda, on TV3. Yeah, I remember that. And we used to pretend we were RT to get the guests. We used to say, oh, yes, it's prime primetime here at RT," <laughs> And we knew they wouldn't know because they're Russians. So they thought they were going on <laughs> primetime, huge audience. And it was me and you and my ma and a few others watching. But because I'd been in, in Russia, and had so much interest in it. And Gorbachev, to me, was interestingly a big hero of mine, a huge hero of mine. Russians hate him. But mm. just can't stand him but I interviewed him I sat and I talked to him for quite a while and it was I actually spoke to him about loss his wife had just died Raisa yes and Raisa was actually his complete soulmate, his real confidant his advisor and they were they were an extraordinarily close couple and she was an incredibly intelligent woman and I just remember I was sitting talking to him, and what I noticed about Gorbachev more than anything else was his extraordinarily kind eyes. I know that sounds weird. Mm. I know it doesn't sound when you're interviewing the former head of the Soviet Union. these are These are things you don't, you shouldn't notice, but you do that inside there was a really kind human being. And... I asked him about his wife, I asked him about loss, I was much much younger he started to spoke to me, I, actually I have it somewhere, I should actually replay the, 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 the interview, and he said like, you know, you're a much younger man but this will happen to you as you get older and it was a really interesting wow. conversation you know, and the interesting thing about Gorbachev, there's many interesting things about him, but he was really averse to violence and this would make him completely different to almost all Russian stroke Soviet leaders he Only at the very, very end of provocation did Gorbachev ever really legitimize violence against protesters. Yeah. And many, many historians would suggest that maybe he should have done more of that, that he should have held the power. But I think... It wasn't within him. It wasn't within him. He He wasn't a violent person. And he was an extremely brilliant, very, very... I mean, most Russians would say he was the man who destroyed the Soviet Union. And he got into power in 1984-85 after a series of corpses had been running the Soviet Union. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Warming these fuckers up, guys. (laughs) After Brezhnev, there was Andropov and Chernenko, and there might have even been another one. And he came in, and he was younger, and he was different, and he'd also been in the West. He'd been in the West. He'd actually been on a driving holiday with his missus. Oh, really? Road trip? Yeah, a road trip in France. (laughs) And he'd seen what was going on. Wow. And he was trying to... You know, modernized, but I mean, what is interesting about Gorbachev and interesting about all the Russian leaders since Stalin, well, certainly since Khrushchev, is the role of oil prices and commodity prices in the superpower politics, right? So if you look at when oil prices started to rise very, very rapidly from 1973 and then peaked in 1980, Mm. okay, this was the period where the Soviet Union it was the best time in the world to live in the Soviet Union. If you talk to people in the Soviet Union who lived in the seventies, they were called the Brezhnev children, and they had consumer goods or enough of them. Yeah, they had jobs, they had places to go. They could go on holidays all around the Soviet Union at the time it was huge, and they could go to Cuba, and they could go to parts of Africa, and they could go to you know client states all over the world. Russia was Soviet Union was a huge power. It yeah. was driven always by oil revenue. So as oil prices increase, what you get is this expansion of the Soviet Union. And again, this masks the fragility of the system because unlike China now, so for example, the reason that China and Japan are so brilliant at manufacturing is they have no energy. The reason Mm -hmm. that Germany is so brilliant at manufacturing, it's got no energy, right? So it can't... Makes that... Mm -hmm. Because you can't depend. You see, if you can depend on sucking things out of the ground, like oil, right. to get rich, right? You don't bother with manufacturing. It's hard. Right. You can yeah, get you rich
2: by... Take this stuff out and sell it Take it out and sell it to other people. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. if
0: you look at the great manufacturing areas, one of the defining characteristics, they have no energy. China, Japan, Germany, right? So they have to create their own dynamism of economic growth mm. in order to actually generate wealth. Whereas the Russians could kind of sit back and allowed the oil price to rise. And basically, every time the price of oil rises, what you see is Russia expands. And the great example of that is, of course, the, Af- the Afghanistan war. yeah,
2: 1978,
0: yeah. oil prices are rising. And then they knew also that this would precipitate an oil price rise as well. So in a way, it was kind of, they used to sit around strategically say, what will make the price of oil rise? Okay, we'll do that because it will rise.
2: So, So at the moment, as prices are going through the roof, Russia is kind of rubbing its hands, going, because people are still buying Russian oil. Yeah,
0: so only if you're buying it. But it's very clear that we will end up not buying this stuff. Yeah. That's the end well, game.
2: I, I think that's
0: imperative. Yeah, and it's going to happen. So if you think of, for example, so Russia goes, it's in its heyday in the late 70s. Mm. Then oil prices collapse in the 80s, What also collapses the Soviet Union. Yeah. Because they've no money, they can't pay for anything, right? So it's no surprise to me that when the Soviet Union collapsed in the late 80s, it was also coincidence with a glut of commodities all around the world. right? And that's where their power lies. And that's, of course, where the way in which Russian assets, if you look back, I've been actually reading the Romanovs, a book by Simon Sebag Montefiore. Mm-hmm. Great name, right. great book. It's a history it's- of the Romanovs. <laughs> but, you know, you get into all that sort of stuff, but... So then you look at, you're absolutely right now, Putin's calculation was the following, was exactly this, look, I'll start a war, oil prices will go up, my revenues will go up, we get a slap on the wrist by the Americans, the UN will have some sort of directive against us, you know, Mm. and frankly, nothing will happen. And not only will we win the war, but we'll get rich too. So it's a win-win combination, but that's not happening. Although oil prices are going up, they're going up in the expectation of the rest of the world yeah. not buying Russian oil in quite soon. I mean, I think we'll buy it now up until the summer, and then you'll see that the Europeans and the Americans will use the summer to make sure that next winter. Whoa, hang on a second. Up until the summer? That gives
2: him a huge amount of time to to build up a huge amount of
0: resources. Well, let's see, because we're going to talk about how the sanctions are actually operating on the Russians in a couple of minutes, right? But that's what I would say to you, until such a time, because Europe doesn't want to cut itself off now, Mm. right? Because then what you do is you inflict more pain on yourself than on them. Yeah. That's right. But if you look at, I, I think it's really interesting to look at the way in which assets have been built in Russia over the last 50 years. So the very first period, or maybe 100 years, but let's say the very first period is The Russians build up their oil and gas exporting industry. They suppress wages under the communist system, and they pay people in rubles, right? But they're getting paid in dollars. So think about what's happening, right? In a normal company, what would happen is the wages of the workers would rise in dollar terms as oil prices rise, and they would get some of the fruits of their labor. But in Russia, they suppressed wages by paying people in rubles, which is always a profoundly undervalued currency, number one, that meant that the oil companies, the Russian oil companies, got huge amounts of money. Normally, that would go to profits, Mm. but that didn't. It went to cronies. It went to the communists, right? And therefore, the Communist Party and the oil industry were linked at the hip. So that's the first phase. So did the oil assets of Russia go to the apparatchiks, okay, yeah. and the Communist yeah. Party. And they're spent in bizarre things like wars in Mozambique and Angola and interballistic missiles and all that sort of stuff, yeah, right? Yeah. Second phase is after Gorbachev is deposed and everything goes up for sale. The oligarchs, people like Abramovich, right, mm. end up owning the oil industry. Why? Because the Russians gave a thing called voucher privatization. So they gave everybody a little piece of paper so that you owe one millionth of the oil company, Gazprom, okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But most Russians said, well, fuck this. I don't want a little piece of paper saying I owe one million. And Abramovich says, I give you real money for it. Because he set up a bank. And he says, I give you real money for it. It was all like right. a Ponzi scheme. He got money in, then he got money from the West. And he amassed all these, basically, tokens. And then turned up one day and said, I own everything. Right? Yes. So, yeah, that, yeah, yeah. so it's a transfer of wealth. Think of the wealth. The wealth goes from the Russian people to the Russian state via the oil. It then goes from the Russian state to the oligarchs mm. under Yeltsin. Then Putin comes in and he says, "Ah, here, I want some of that back for me and my lads." Yeah. So most of the oligarchs like Abramovich did a deal with Putin, right? So that's the, the second transfer of wealth. First transfers from the people to the state, second from the state to the oligarchs under Yeltsin. Yeah third from the Yeltsin oligarchs to the Putin oligarchs and the fourth was again people like Abramovich get the money out of Russia which and they is buy a trophy they buy trophy assets like yeah. Chelsea right yes yeah, so yeah, yeah. chelsea is the byproduct of probably the most kleptocratic stroke ever played on a sovereign nation which is amazing gets, And now the fifth one is, we're robbing it back. <laughs> this is what's happening. And just has to sell it.
2: Yeah, because yeah, yeah. the
0: West is now confiscating the assets of Russian oligarchs who confiscated the assets of the Russian state. So in fact, the West is doing what the Russian state should be doing. And if fantastically, and it's interesting, there's a lot of stuff saying that all that confiscated wealth could be put in a fund to be given back to the Russians.
2: Right. Okay. If this
0: war ends, if Putin is deposed, if there is a reconstruction of the so the Russian economy, that's, which could be quite fascinating. That's
2: quite a carrot for the, the Russian people to rise up again. But
0: your, mm. man's, your man's not going to tell there's no way he's going to tell him that. No, no, no. We will tell him, listen to the Dave McQueen's podcast. <laughs> Shh, come, here, come, <laughs> here, come, come here, come here, come here, come here. Slushai, Which means listen in Russian. Slushai. Slushimo. Okay. Anyway, so that, so that's the way it works, right? right and that's the role of Gorbachev. That's amazing. So basically, if you want to understand Russia, understand Chelsea. Overpaying for shit players, okay? <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, winning, we're not going to get into football. Winning here. a
0: few trophies, okay? <laughs> winning a few trophies. But frankly, Chelsea, there are thousands of Chelsea type assets. There could be vineyards, there could be yachts, they could be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This yeah, is yeah. how the Russian oligarchs recycled the money of the Russian people. Right? Yeah. and became immense, hugely rich. And right now, what the sanctions are doing is they're basically saying, see all that money you took off the Russians? We're going to take it off you. Which is quite interesting. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. of course, what they're saying is, we might let you keep a bit of it, but you've got to knock on the door of Vlad and say, Vlad, time to go. Yeah. And that, I presume, is, is the strategy. But it is interesting the way in which you go from Khrushchev to Brezhnev to Gorbachev to Yeltsin to Putin... And it's like everything, John. Just follow the money. It leads you to where the real truth of the matter is. And that's what we're going to do now. Because we're going to talk to a fantastic macroeconomist, Sonny Kapoor. He's been at the forefront of economic thinking. Yeah. Macroeconomic thinking. Great guy. Just look him up, Google Sonny Kapoor. He's a great guy. He's in India now. He knows everything about the sanctions, where the money's going, whatnot. And he's going to explain to us why India has been quite ambivalent.
2: Yes, I'm curious about that.
0: And the end game with respect to China. So let's go to Delhi, because we kind of like going around the world, don't we, John? We do. And we'll talk to Sonny Kapoor. Sonny, how are you doing there? Good to see you again. Listen, Sonny, we'll go straight into it, okay? Explain to me the logic of the sanctions, who's been impacted, why we're doing what we're doing, and what you think the end game is.
3: Yeah. No, so, so this is, so, so, you know, the way we thought about it was we designed the sanctions to fall within the Goldilocks zone and the Goldilocks zone was effectively you had to target wealth, not income, right? So imagine you know you are some sort of landed gentry in Ireland, and you know, that's one way of thinking about the Russian state, and you clearly still get you know income from income from your lands, etc. But basically, you know, most of your, your financial economic power comes from the wealth you possess, right? Yeah. So the wealth had to be targeted. And it was targeted in three ways. One, to cut down, you know, how much the assets available to the Russian state were worth, right? So you effectively devalued. So let's say before the invasion, Russian assets were worth, you know, 100 units, right? So after the sanctions were imposed, you know, nobody wants to touch them. Many of them were forbidden. Some of the, you know, entities have been driven into bankruptcy, et cetera. I would say, you know, the guess I made in a Wall Street Journal interview on Saturday, the day after the invasion was, I said most Russian assets would now be between somewhere between 25 to 75% of their value before the invasion, which is a very substantial drop. Sure, right? no, so imagine
0: all your wealth falls
3: very, very substantially by, roughly by about, you know, half of the wealth is gone overnight. The second thing we one had to do was even the residual wealth is still very substantial right? I mean, it's several tens of billions, hundreds of billions of dollars, is you had to limit access to that, right? And that's why the twin strategy of the seizure, of the freezing of assets, and there the central bank was critical. So I very, I pushed super hard on the central bank sanctions because that was the single biggest pot of money. And that Putin had quite deliberately built up, you know, in anticipation of, you know sanctions, and I guess he he underestimated you know the the willingness to to escalate sanctions to include the central bank, or it would not have been a sensible way of you know putting the reserves as he had, and and so by freezing or limiting access to at least half of the central bank reserves, his ability to to touch them was substantially diminished, and then number three. Given most of us have known, and, you know, the UK has been a big center for laundering Russian money, how much of the Russian oligarch wealth was acquired illegitimately, a lot of the money and a lot of the assets were seized, right? So so freezing can be unfrozen, but once you've seized them, then you've changed ownership. You know, the state has taken over. And our suggestion back then on, on, uh, on Friday was that these assets should all be warehoused in a trust fund that could be used in the future for war reparations and for rebuilding the Ukrainian economy. And, you know, if, if there is a democratic transition in Russia, we will need several hundred billions of dollars of, of reconstruction aid to go in to help reconstruct the Russian economy. And I think that, you know, in, in that sense, a very, Big financial blow was dealt and and you know by a rough estimate, I would say somewhere between you know fifty to seventy percent of easily accessible Russian wealth was made inaccessible over the course of a weekend, and then we can come to the
0: income part now So, can you explain to me and the listeners when we're when you're talking about we and when you're sitting down, who are you talking to who's making the decisions? explain to me how the decisions and sanctions are being made, who's actually pulling the trigger, what is the input, what's the committee that's feeding into these decisions? Because I think most people are saying, oh, sanctions, it's kind of opaque. Nobody's saying, well, okay, who's making the decisions, when, how much effort went in before, how much effort went in now? Because again, it's very, very clear that these are not sanctions being made unilaterally by various governments. They're being made in a coordinated basis.
3: Well, so there is... No clear answer. The best I can tell you, since I'm not, you know, an official decision maker, is that there was a lot of uh, preparation work that went into the sanctioned regime, and this is before the invasion was launched. Yes, and this was, to to the best of my knowledge, a lot of it came from the United States for two reasons. One, it was U.S. intelligence, which which as we now know, you know, post-invasion has been very accurate, uh, you know, most most of the part. And so they did really see this coming. And of course, you know, it's impossible to have 100% confidence. And they hoped until the very last minute that, you know, Putin wouldn't actually pull the proverbial trigger. But the second is, the us has the longest you know most detailed experience of extrajudicial policymaking yep. using the dollar's dominance and the dominance of the us financial system and you know it was the us which has been central in designing all the previous sanction regimes and in fact perhaps coincidentally perhaps not just two days before the russian invasion the congressional research office the independent research arm of the us congress released a fairly comprehensive report on the Iran sanctions, which, you know, you know I, I tweeted out, I think, the day after. And I think so So, the, in terms of the, let's say, the policy input and the parameters and the maps, I think that the U.S. has the deepest experience and, and led that. Now, of course, you know, the U.S. is far removed physically from this and even financially. And we are literally on the front line in the EU, and there, I think, you know, France and Germany did really, really work as, as a tag team and led led the effort. And, and what was really, and, and you know, if you've been following EU politics in details, relations between some of the, let's say, Central Eastern European states, particularly Hungary and Poland, and Brussels and the Commission have been have been rather strained Absolutely. recently. Absolutely. And you know, what was remarkable was the speed with which this was set aside to the extent, you know, Poland became the most hawkish member of this coalition pushing for ever tighter sanctions. And so I think it's been it's been remarkable display of unity but coming out of this real existential threat faced by, by the European. And now this leads to that big question about, you know, why were the sanctions focused on assets and the capital account? And why were, you know, gas and oil and commodities left out?
0: Yeah, because that's the one that, that everyone's asking that the in election? the pub. That's the, that's, if you go down to the pub. That's, that's the Okay, why? So first of all, so the first important point is,
3: short of Putin starting to bomb a NATO country or EU country, the biggest leverage he has on us in the EU is turning off the gas, right? Yeah. So it would be shockingly irresponsible for EU policymakers to not launch a war-like footing, you know, contingency planning for exactly that eventuality because the question is not... Whether Putin will turn off the gas or not, the question is when. And even if you know in the in the odd scenario that unfolds that he never does, you know it would have been insanely stupid for us to have just not prepared for the eventuality that is right. Right. So so that's been one of the focus of our advocacy efforts that we have to have to prepare an immediate contingency plan. Now the answer to this is is very very simple, right? So it wasn't either targeting the wealth or the income, we clearly could have done both, right? So we could have imposed tight financial sanctions, you know, taken away all of the all of the assets of the Russian regime, you know, frozen them to the extent we can, which the Chinese will not join us in. And at the same time, you know, shut down all Russian imports of oil and gas and other commodities. The problem is, and this goes to the asymmetry issue. So number one, the immediate impact would have been to reduce Russia's daily income by $1 to $2 billion, right? Yeah. And by targeting the financial assets, we reduced Russia's wealth by somewhere north of, you know, 300 to $400 billion in a weekend, right? Sure. So clearly an order of magnitude difference. So that was number one. Second is the asymmetry. Now, we have already seen, just with the rumors of an imminent end to Russian oil and gas, it has sent commodity markets absolutely into, you know, unprecedented yes, territory. Yeah, yeah. Nickel, for example, right? And we were already just coming out of a terrible winter, you know, which which apparently was a deliberate strategy of undersupply by Russia of gas, which led to, you know, political protests, you know, potentially nearly brought some governments down, Uh, had hugely regressive impacts on the population in many EU countries where the poorest had to live without heat. People faced heating bills that were, you know, in some cases, ate up their entire salary. So high prices of gas, in particular in the EU, but, but oil more generally, have very regressive impacts impacting those in the bottom strata of of many eu economies the worst right yeah. and and we were already coming after out of a crisis where many of them were completely out of pocket several you know energy firms had failed and to deliberately choose to impose a sudden price shock where gas price didn't go up you know 10 times as it has now compared to last year but would have suddenly spiked up by, you know, maybe 50 times, you know, who knows? And the problem is not just the price. It is also the logistics that even with war footing, like mobilization, delivering heat to certain countries, certain societies, certain cities would simply have been impossible. And and we would have seen so so hugely regressive, huge, you know,
0: large distributive so what you what you're saying? This is this is this is like it, the whole sanction choices have been: how do we hit the Russian wealth, Russian oligarchs, those around Putin who may have some impact on into his thinking hardest? How do we preserve the impact those on our own people and 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 make that as soft as possible? And then the third bit is then: how do these two choices? Impact, in your opinion, the decision-making process at the Kremlin?
3: Again, it's it's hard to for anybody to look into Putin's mind, but based on the remarks he's made about energy security, etc., he has seemed to imply that cutting off Russian gas and oil would be an escalation that might somehow, you know, deserve more direct Russian attacks on the West and, you know, in between the lines, even sort of, you know, nuclear escalation, right?
0: Yeah, no, know. He hinted at that there the other day. Yeah.
3: Yeah. So so this is very important to him, but there is no way in the near term, and in the near term, I mean, you know, week, a month, several months of us cutting off his income from oil and gas without inflicting pain, just in terms of numbers, right? So it would reduce his revenue if, if just the EU stopped importing by, you know, $1 to $2, $2 billion a day. If there was a global ban, let's say, you know, $5 billion a day, maybe let's even say $10 billion a day, right? But it would hit the consumers across the world, yeah, including no, developing economies, etc., by something closer to, you know, $100 billion a day, right? So effectively one tenth of the pain would fall within Russia
0: and 90 and 90 percent the rest of us yeah, yeah. okay okay
3: exactly okay. And, and the rest of us here being we're not just talking about the eu which is you know relatively advanced region right we're talking about you know india is a huge net importer of oil and gas right i mean and it's not a rich country it's struggling to come out of COvid Uh, Many African economies are huge net importers of, you know, fossil fuels and including, you know, Nigeria, paradoxically, which doesn't make enough refined products. Right. And so it would have been a very large impact and a very regressive impact across the global economy. And the best we can do is to put that off to the extent we can while preparing for an eventuality that this is likely to happen sooner rather than later, right? And that is, at least in the EU, within the EU, the new plan that will be announced, I think, on Thursday to reduce dependence on Russian gas imports, increase investments in renewables, LNG terminals, etc. That's what that plan is.
0: Uh, Just before you go, Sonny, let's talk briefly about India. You're in Delhi. I think a lot of people have been quite surprised at the Indian ambiguity at the United Nations level as to why the Indians are not condemning outrightly the invasion of Ukraine. That's the first question. And then maybe briefly the second question, the role of China in the whole, in the whole game. Like when it's all over and when the cards fall, who emerges strongest? So firstly, India and then China.
3: So I grew up in India and we lived under constant existential threat of either an aggressive China, because China did attack India and you know took away many territories in Kashmir and Northeast India. And of course, you know, an unpredictable, mostly run by, you know, bigoted dictators, Pakistan, which was nuclear armed you know, if you look at it from the Indian, the long history of, you know, the Indian perception, at the time, the U.S. was very explicitly, the U.S. in particular, but the West more generally, explicitly aiding Pakistan to undermine the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, right? It was the U.S. that sort of created Taliban and armed the Taliban, and and the Taliban was, Effective. So, so in some ways, right? I mean, history is sort of repeating itself. So we're now talking about a plan to arm the insurgency in Ukraine in the event that Russia stays and you know controls some of the territory. But this was exactly what was used after Russia invaded Afghanistan. There was a clear strategy.
0: Yep, to finance, to arm, to to look the other way, all that stuff. And the problem
3: was right. So I lost. Uh, I personally lost relatives in terrorist attacks. You know, when we go to markets in Delhi with my family, the last time I was here with my family, there was a bomb attack uh, a few days before that. And most of them are, you know, directly linked to Pakistan. And in the long history of, you know, Indian foreign policy, the United States has been seen to be very, uh, and again, you know, while professing democratic values, etc., ignoring the world's biggest democracy and arming the, you know, the crazy, uh, bigoted dictatorship next door to the teeth uh, at our cost, right, at India's cost. And related to this was, and I don't remember the exact history, but Russia has been India's most reliable supplier of arms, you know. So all of the Indian Air Force tanks, et cetera, in many cases, either the United States refused to supply or there were other complications, you know, some congressional delegation objected to India getting, you know, F-16s or, you know, again, I don't recall the details. Yeah, but, but, but
0: Russia has been a significant player.
3: Absolutely, right? So, so from India's perspective, all of the Indian, no, not all, right? So we, we've diversified the Indian armed forces. So there's, you know, a lot of Mirage jets and, you know, French fighter jets, etc. But for the most part. The whole of the Indian armed forces remain primarily reliant on ex-USSR and now Russian-supplied arms and infrastructure, spare parts, and everything else, right? And again, the Indian armed forces in spending are probably, you know, a pale shadow of how much China is spending arming itself, right? And it's an increasingly aggressive China, And so India feels very insecure, surrounded by both Pakistan and China, both of whom have attacked India in living memory, heavily armed to the teeth, both of them nuclear powers. And India's main arms supply and partner, who has occasionally stood by India's side using its Security Council veto to support an Indian position in the past, is seen to be Russia, right? Of course, you know, Indians are horrified. Everybody I speak to is absolutely horrified, but at a geostrategic level, particularly with you know facing serious existential threat from China and Pakistan, India doesn't want to be seen to be doing anything that would burn bridges okay. with Russia at an irreparable that, that, level. That so that explains ap- it to me. Yeah. What was the best possible position? one was going to get out of India, given the holistic calculations.
0: And then just finally, China is a huge player in all this, basically the kingmaker in all this. Where do you think those cards will land?
3: Well, okay, so so there's several threads to this discussion, right? So one is folks are are, are saying that, you know, the whole global financial and trading system will, will bifurcate into the China-Russia axis and, and the Western-led axis, right? So I don't think that is going to happen. I think if you see, again, you know, both the impact on Russia of the sanctions and what's happening, and, and just going back to the sanctions for a second, what's been very remarkably surprising, and it's a positive surprise for policymakers, is the acceleration of self-sanctioning that is happening. And in many ways, you know, Visa, MasterCard cutting links with, with Russia, you know, Apple refusing to, to yeah, sell. Yeah, sure, you know, IBM to, to sp-
0: pulling out, all that sort of stuff. So the companies themselves are doing
3: Absolutely, right. So, so And sanctions, you know, different dimensions of sanctions reinforce each other, right? So Boeing refusing to supply spare parts to the Russian fleet combined with, let's say, you know, Apple and, and Google decide to cut off the mobile ecosystems, right? So their people's iPhones stop working. They haven't done that yet, but and I don't know if that's technically possible. That really, really makes it real. So, so the combined firepower of self-sanctions together with, you know, the trading restrictions that are already in place, combined with, you know, the main policy-led financial sanctions— is huge and will decimating and is decimating the russian economy right and and what's very interesting about that is and in some ways you know china has built more of a self sufficient ecosystem with you know with 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 the internet for example has secured raw material supplies that are better is technically far more competent and unlike russia is a center of you know manufacturing capability is, is sort of the nerve center of of that in the world right so so if China is thinking that this is the playbook of you know the China Taiwan clash happening, this is you know yeah. and, and there will be the sequel,
0: right? It's it's not gonna it's not gonna want this one. It's not gonna want this because I mean I would have thought that if two weeks ago China thought, well look, if the Russians go in, they win quickly, uh, the Ukrainians turn over, the West kind of shrugs shoulders, there's a few UN. It slaps on the wrist. Well then China will say, okay, well that's a green light for us. But now they must be saying, oh, no, hold on a second, this is a different ballgame.
3: Basically, right? I mean, so every single thing that you know China has spent the past 30, 40 years doing, building up its economy, you know, getting into the WTO, integrating itself into the global economy, it is the largest trading partner, I think, of twice as many countries as you know the United States yeah. is, right? So let's say, you know, a replay of Russia, Ukraine with China, Taiwan will be, you know, several order of magnitude more painful for China and for the rest of the world, right? So so that really would be the, the hydrogen bomb going off in the global financial system and the global economy, where, you know, what what is happening now is a is a relatively low intensity you know uh, atomic bomb fission bomb that has gone off with Russia and and I I think that you know if this is the kind of response one might get so I think that the likelihood of of sort of all of that falls right the second is again i mean china has you know uh, gone by all of its foreign policies, supposedly, even though it doesn't personally follow that, right? Uh, uh, driven by the principle of state sovereignty and, you know, the state boundaries are, are given. And, you know, and, and and this is such a clear and naked violation happening in real time that everybody is seeing. One cannot help but think that either she was not told about the extent and how blatant this would be, or you know what was told that you know something would happen, and Putin has go with me. So, so I cannot imagine a scenario where right now China is happy with Putin. I imagine what is going on without knowing anything for certain is a huge amount of pressure being put by China on Russia behind closed doors to stop this madness, to reach some kind of a detente, which allows Putin to save face, because the escalation of this, it leaves nobody better off. And of course, you know, China, in terms of economic impact, too, is a huge importer of fossil fuels and commodities, and is, you know, desperately trying to transition its economy. And this is the big party Congress where, you know, is going to be uh, crowned again. And the last thing they wanted was something that was this disruptive. So I- I'm assuming there's a lot of pressure behind closed doors being put by China and Russia. I cannot be certain, but at the same time, you know, the concept of face is very, very important, both in India and in China. And one would never imagine a scenario where China would go do a mere culpa, Right. So China will continue to publicly defend the stance it has taken and the grand treaty signed with Russia just before the Olympics, but while applying very strong pressure behind closed doors. And I do not think China is going to bail Russia out of this one. It is not capable of doing it. It is capable of helping it. It is capable of supporting it financially and through trade for a while, but I cannot imagine it has a strong incentive to
0: do that. Sonny, we will leave it there. We went around the houses, but perfect. It was wonderful. Listen, Sonny Kapoor, thank you so much for your inaugural David McWilliams podcast interview, or chat at least. And we're going to have more.
3: Wonderful. I'd love to be back. Thank you so much.
2: <laughs> no, but he was great. There was it's loads stuff, of isn't it? Really interesting stuff. And I was wondering, as we said earlier, I was I was really wondering about India's stance on this, particularly after seeing Imran Khan going knocking on the door of Putin there a few weeks ago. What was going on there? But it's really interesting to to hear about India's relationship with Russia.
0: Yeah, because it's very very. We forget that India. Was a quasi-socialist state for the first forty years of since independence, right? Mm-hmm. And in fact, Nehru, you yeah, know, yeah. Nehru was all inspired from Dublin. That, Nehru spent time in Dublin in 1914 and 1915,
1: right? Yeah, because his
0: brother—it's an amazing story—was in the College of Surgeons. But think oh, about this: yes, yeah, and Nehru on. wrote home talking about how much he admired Sinn Féin and the Sinn Féin movement, right? And he was inspired by the <laughs> Sinn Féin movement. And, of course, de Valera and Nero were really good mates. He yeah. used to write letters to each other all the time. They were, the, they, were, they were at the vanguard of this post-colonial yeah. movement, yeah. global movement, actually, that Casement envisaged before the Brits killed him, right? Our boy Casement, right? Didn't he envisaged, he crops up every he learned, envisaged a me. pan sort of empire movement of decolonization, right? Yeah. So that that was great, because Sonny did explain to us. So India has always been close to Russia. Yeah. Because Russia backed them against Pakistan, and the Americans backed Pakistan against Russia in Afghanistan. Yes. And of course, we forget that India and China have been at war three times this century. Mm. I mean, so it's quite, you know, uh,
2: And only last year, or it two, a couple of years ago?
0: Two years ago, yeah. Yeah. And also what we forget, well, we don't forget, but it's worth reiterating, that combined India and China are about half the world. Yeah. It's about half the people Population. in the world yeah,
2: know. live
0: in India and China. Maybe not half, but 40%. So so basically four people in every 10 are spoken for by Modi and Xi. Yeah. In the planet, which is amazing. But I thought his conclusion was fascinating, which is China, despite all the idea of you know, there's going to be a china russia link against the west what he's saying is china have no interest in being lumbered with permanently this husk of an economy and hulk of a superpower yeah called russia because it's not in their interest they don't do enough trade with the russians
2: but it might have been different though if it was a very quick war in ukraine
0: you're absolutely right yeah
2: because then that would have given them the green light for taiwan now taiwan looks a little bit more tricky
0: a, a, little bit more tricky, but also the consequences of launching an attack on Taiwan yeah. are apocalyptic for the Chinese. And this is not a miscalculation that I think the Chinese are about to make. Because they've looked at Putin and they said, okay, he was regarded as the great strategist. And he's like a buffoon yeah. Yeah, yeah,
2: Do you know what I mean? He is. Yeah. He's, like,
0: he's like a, like a schoolyard bully, you know. Schoolyard bully who's a gobshite a bit of an egypt isn't half as threatening as a schoolyard bully who's a tactical genius, right? And now I think he's just been proven to be naive in international relations. Yeah. And the Chinese will be sitting there taking notes saying, okay, yeah. another course of action. <laughs> Just a quick shout out to all our Patreons. Thank you so much for supporting us over the last year. I hope you're enjoying the course. I hope you're enjoying the questions. I hope you're enjoying the uh, chats on Patreon. And if you do fancy supporting us, all you got to do is go to patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams.